0: Welcome to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast hosted by Alison Humphreys. The Recruitment Leadership Podcast is here to help those in the recruitment industry gain awareness and understanding on the hot topics faced by those in the business of hiring people. In each episode, Alison Humphreys is joined by a fellow expert to offer professional knowledge, insight, and advice on the biggest subjects affecting recruitment businesses. It's the podcast to listen to for recruitment business frontrunners seeking expert information from industry-leading advisors. Welcome to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast.
1: Hello again, and welcome to this episode of the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. I'm Alison Humphries, and in this series, we are looking from very different perspectives at the whole issue of candidate shortages and what recruiters can do about it. So this time round, I'm delighted to be joined by Sharon Peak. Welcome, Sharon. Hello, thank you. Who is the uh, CEO and founder of Shape Talent. Now, Sharon's a highly experienced diversity and talent management expert. She's got 20 years of experience working in global businesses, including executive level roles at FTSE 20 businesses, where she was responsible for diversity and talent uh, and retention. Sharon then founded Shape Talent fairly recently, 2017 with a specific focus on accelerating the progression of women into senior roles. So we're going to also be looking at um, Sharon's white paper, which is about ensuring properly diverse candidate pools. And Sharon is an expert on gender diversity. So most of her points are about gender in the workforce, but there may be some wider implications for you as well. So, Sharon, let's just start with the white paper, if we may. You published, and this really caught my eye, you published this white paper on the three barriers to women's progression.
2: What was the purpose? Why did you feel the world needed this? Well, that's a great question. Thank you, Alison. So... uh... Quite simply, the world does need this. Still today, we get people saying to us, isn't gender diversity done? Isn't it fixed? We've been at it a long time. Surely we've solved this problem. And the sad truth is we haven't. We're still quite a long way off gender equality, both in the UK and globally. So whilst in graduate level roles. Mostly we have a 50-50 balance between men and women in most industries. At every successive level of the leadership pipeline, there is some leakage. We call it the, the leaky talent pipeline. So by the time you get to the very top, women are significantly underrepresented. Across uh, the EU, women account for 20.7% of executives uh, and only 7.9% of CEOs. So we're a long way off gender balance. When you look at Europe, we have similar statistics in the UK. The World Economic Forum estimate we're 135 years off achieving gender equality at the current pace. So this is why we think it's important. There's still a lot to be done. The pace of change is too slow. And so we are really interested in understanding what are the underlying reasons for this? Why why is there such a gap? Why is it so slow? And that's really why we prepared the white paper and why we've launched it to help our clients to make a difference and to make it a bit sooner than the 135 years that it was predicted.
1: Now, I, I know that in the UK, we actually have one of the highest proportion of women in the workforce, but not necessarily at the right place in the workforce. Um, so what are the key messages of your white paper please.
2: So uh, there's a couple of key messages and as the title suggests there are three barriers so the title of the white paper is the three barriers to women's progression and what organizations can do and the three barriers we've distilled the, the categories if you like the types of barriers that really get in the way of gender equality in the workplace and the first one is societal barriers so these are the of the the subtle, the more unspoken messages that we all receive over the course of our lifetime that influence the way in which we believe men and women ought to behave. We take these views and beliefs into the workplace um, and that can lead to gender stereotypes, it can lead to the view that men take charge and women take care and there's certain roles that women should do and men should do. So there's a category of barriers there that are societal Then the the second category is organisational barriers. So these are things that are happening within the organisation, either structurally uh, in terms of how women get access to networks, how they get access to um, mentoring and sponsorship, how they get access to opportunities and the right experiences that help with career progression. And they can also be cultural. So there's always on culture that we see in a lot of big businesses. We've always got to be available at the end of an email or a phone to to deal with issues that come up even out of hours. So collectively, these organisational barriers uh, uh, disproportionately impact women. And then the third category is what we call personal barriers. And these are things that as women ourselves, we might inadvertently do or not do, Uh, And these things might undermine our career progression or or maximising our potential. So we might opt out of um, a leadership track. We might not put ourselves forward for a role, even though we're ready. We might choose to prioritise our time at home rather than in the workforce. So collectively, you've got societal, organisational and personal barriers that together mean women aren't represented in equal number at the top. And it also means that as as much as we hang on to this idea of meritocracy in the workplace, uh, and I come from a background in HR, I spent 20 years in in in-house senior HR roles where I was the custodian, the guardian of recruitment and promotion processes. So I was very wedded to this belief of meritocracy and I, I understand those that are. But as much as we like to believe it, the reality is that it isn't a level playing field because of some of the structural barriers that I've just referenced. So there's a lot to be done to make it a level playing field. Now, it's an interesting thing that I've just taken my own experience. When I started in
1: recruitment, which was back in the mid 80s, um it was overt then you know gender prejudice was not unconscious it was very conscious um and people routinely used to say to me i don't want a woman because she'll just go off on maternity leave right now we nobody says that these days however i do find that the the stereotypes are incredibly persistent so um somebody said to me the other day um, well you know if some evening or weekend working is required in a job, then it we're, we're discriminating against women. I said why, and they said, well, because women have childcare responsibilities. Now I'm thinking to myself, well, hang on, there's a dangerous assumption. Isn't that
2: just as dangerous an assumption as women
1: will go off on maternity leave?
2: You're absolutely right. And in fact, I would say that one of the biggest barriers of all is the gender stereotypes that permeate our thinking. And these are largely things that we grow up with. It's what society teaches us from a young age. So they do tend to hang around. We form these beliefs kind of at a young age and they can stick with us through adulthood. But stereotypes can work both ways. So let me me give you a few data points here to, um, to help the listeners work out what's real and what's imagined when it comes to stereotypes. So we know from some solid research from the UN and the International Labour Organization that women do bear a disproportionate double burden of paid and unpaid work. So the ILO, the International Labour Organization, do a survey every few years where they measure the number of unpaid hours that men and women do at home largely caring responsibilities might be caring for children caring for elders and they measure that across a range of countries there's about 80 different countries and even in the most gender equal parts of the world in Scandinavia in Sweden Norway Finland even there women perform more of the unpaid domestic labor than men they do 1.2 times the amount that men do. In the UK, it's something like 1.8 times. So there are, there's about four hours and 20 minutes a day women are spending on unpaid labour in the UK compared to about two hours, 12 minutes for men or something like that. So we know that women do more of the unpaid care work, which means there is physically less time available for those women who have caring responsibilities, which I appreciate isn't everyone, there's physically less time to do a demanding job. So there is a disproportionate impact on women when it comes to the, the tensions between home and work, more so than men, and this happens in every country around the world. The other thing that we know from a, a really interesting piece of research that Kantar do, Kantar are a big research organisation, They surveyed people, they surveyed last year 20,000 people in the G7 economies, uh, plus a couple of other countries, like India and Kenya and Nigeria, and they asked, to what degree would you feel comfortable with a woman as the CEO of a major company? And so this is a bit of a test, isn't it, as to gender stereotypes. Do we think women can do important jobs? Now, in the UK, 68% of people are very comfortable with a woman as the CEO of a major company. 68 it's about just over two-thirds so there's a third of people who are not comfortable not very comfortable with this concept still it varies by gender so 74 percent of women agree most three quarters of women agree only 62 percent of men agree so we can see that this stereotype about the role that women should play in society is very real and it does provide barriers
1: Now, I see you said in your white paper, uh, and this was what really caught my eye, that flexible working can be career limiting for women. Now, can you explain why? Because I think most of our audience will be intrigued by that.
2: Yeah, so this is a a really interesting concept. The study, I think, originally was from the Centre for Talent Innovation, if I remember correctly. Essentially, what they found is that Women are more likely to be the beneficiaries of flexible working arrangements for the reasons that we've just discussed women tend to bear a higher burden of domestic responsibilities and one way of managing that is to work flexibly, whether it be working from home working shortened hours working part time. So women tend to do it more so than men and as a result it becomes stigmatized. And I, having worked on the inside of organisations, can myself relate to conversations where leaders make assumptions about the level of commitment that an individual has if they're not present all the time, if they're working part-time, if they're starting later or finishing earlier to do a school run. So there is a stigma associated with working part-time which disadvantages those that do it, uh, or part-time or flexibly. And I've also had lots of clients give me examples of how they can't progress their careers if they work part-time. So there's a really firmly held belief in in many organisations that you've got to be full-time to be taken seriously and to progress your career. And what's really interesting about this is it is very gendered because women more so than men work flexibly. However, an interesting study from the University of Plymouth found that when men work part-time, they suffer exactly the same penalty. It's called the fatherhood um, forfeit. They are rated lower than women in promotability, in hireability, in competence. So so men have an even greater penalty if they work part-time. And the the reason for that comes back to gender stereotypes, because we kind of expect women to work flexibly or work part-time. We don't expect men to. So when a man or a woman um, acts in ways that are counter to our gender stereotypes, they suffer an even greater social penalty. So they get, they are paid less, they are rated lower, their um, performance ratings uh, are less than women uh, when men work part-time.
1: Now, that's fascinating, given that we have now been, for two years, working much more flexibly, people working from home and having to do homeschooling and um we, we probably everyone who's a boss probably knows much more about their staff's personal lives and living conditions than they've ever had to know before so one might say well hang on surely those in management or leadership positions have now flexed that attitude and can say, look you know flexible we're going to make flexible working part of our permanent model now um therefore you know is that is that effect likely to be diminished
2: and this is the big question and i'm um optimistic but also cautious at the same time about the answer to that question i think there is a wonderful opportunity that the pandemic has given us to really level set how we work and what our expectations are. And we've had a great experiment in working from home for almost two years now. So um, the optimist in me would like to think that we can start to dismantle some of these stereotypes and the stigma associated with flexible and part-time working. More and more I hear men say to me, actually, I've, I've enjoyed the extra opportunity I have now to do the school run or to have a bit more time with my family that I didn't get when I commuted. So I'm hoping there'll be more pressure on organisations to adopt this for everyone. What my worry is, where my caution is, is that not everyone likes working from home. Not everyone is... Is suited to it not everyone has a setup at home which makes it easy for them you know think of people in shared households for example where you don't have a separate space to work from home so some people will want to go back to the office for different reasons and there is a very real risk of proximity bias coming into play where the people that you're closest to in the office are the ones that get the most attention, get the most visibility, um, get the greatest access to those informal networking conversations that happen over the coffee machine or in the elevator or at the bar at the end of the day. So if we're not careful, if organisations aren't careful in hybrid working with some of the workforce being home, some being in the office, the people that are in the office getting most of the visibility will be the ones that get rewarded most. And more often than not, it is likely it will be the men in the office rather than the women for all the reasons that we've talked about. So. That's my caution. There's a a time will tell how this plays out. But certainly my advice to the clients that we work with is to manage that really carefully, to make sure that um, those that are present and in the office aren't disproportionately being rewarded for that. Find ways in the performance management systems to be rewarding those who are working less visibly as well.
1: Mm. Now, thinking about um, the companies I work with, and uh, those tend to be the leaders of recruitment agencies. um, I know some of them have been, you know, have worked really hard to be transparent about what they're what they're measuring people on, and you know, to make to make sure that that is a fair thing. In effect, to decouple the female population or their work, female workers from the whole idea of flexibility so it's not an automatic thing that goes together and sometimes it does get abused I mean you know flexible and home working for some people seems to mean uh, not working unless someone actually phones you or even assuming that you can be a full-time child carer during working hours so I do just want to put that challenge to you that If you are a boss of a small business, a micro business, the idea that, you know, people abuse flexible working and say, oh, well, I can't come on a video call because I'm looking after my dog or my crying toddler or whatever, and expect that to be honoured is a really challenging one. And it's just not practical for a small business. What advice would you give recruitment business owners in those circumstances?
2: Yeah, and I think that's fair. There are always going to be a minority of people who you know who take advantage of that less visibility and, and maybe that's reflected in their performance and their outputs. To me, it all comes down to clarity in terms of goal setting and expectation setting. And it, there's also a degree of trust that needs to be built and needs to be earned between the parties as well I'm a small business owner I have a team of 16 we have always worked remotely we don't physically work in an office all of my team work remotely I do not have visibility day-to-day minute by minute as to what they're doing and and so the way we make it work and I've got an incredible team the way we make it work is we're very very clear at the outset what's required how it needs to be delivered how it will be measured you know, I'm certainly not interested in their inputs, I'm interested in their output, so I don't really care how they do it, I don't really care when they do it, if they want to do it in the evening or during the day, so long as certain commitments can be met, any client facing commitments and calls can be met, I give a lot of flexibility to my team. And so I think it, it really is about building trust and being clear on what's being measured and creating fair measurables that are more about outputs than inputs. Mm, more about outputs than inputs.
1: Okay. Now, again, just thinking of some real-life scenarios, um, I once worked with a business that was launching a very ambitious growth plan. Um, so they were about 40 staff when I joined them, and they were scaling up dramatically. You know, in fact, as I joined them, we did move to 150 staff in a couple of years. Now, one of the issues that I spotted really early on is that the owners of that business while we were putting equal numbers of men and women into the top of the internal recruitment funnel if you will it was a very different proportion that were dropping out the bottom in fact at the time i joined it was 100% men that were dropping out the bottom and you know there was certainly no conscious bias there on the on the part of the business owners but it was clear to me that they were looking for a very familiar display of the skills um, and aptitudes that they thought were necessary. Men and women tend to display them in different ways. So, just to narrow this one down, when they wanted goal orientation and extroversion, they were expecting to see that in the expressed in this very hyper-competitive head-down and charge kind of a description of that people would give of themselves because that's what they'd experienced in the men who they'd hired who'd been successful so I wonder if you could give any advice to owners of businesses who maybe are wondering okay do I do I suffer from unconscious bias um, do you have anything practical that you could
2: suggest to them? I think it's a really great question because this happens all the time when When we're recruiting whether we're a recruiter whether we're a line leader in an organization making recruitment decisions there is a tendency to replicate what has worked well in the past it's usually our starting point isn't it we you know and in in some processes you might even define what are the attributes and behaviors of all the the great performance this is how you used to write competency models for example you'd look at what the best performers did and you'd replicate that And of course, the challenge when you do that is you end up with more of the same. So whatever that model is, whether that's a a man or a a woman or someone of a certain age or someone of a certain skill set, you replicate what you've always had. So it leads to what I call very conservative hiring decisions and very conservative hiring decisions don't really lend themselves to creating greater inclusion and diversity in the hiring decisions that you make. I'm quite cautious about labeling behaviors as as being gendered because, of course, everyone is different and men and women can display aggressive or um, driving characteristics. However, we all know that there are certain behaviors that are more associated with men than women. So it's It's a theory that used to be called the great man theory, that the great leader used to be associated with um, taking charge, being decisive, being driven, being assertive. And so the way that that is displayed with men can be quite different to the way that a woman might display those same behaviors. And some of our unconscious biases can mean that we label a woman's behavior differently. So when she is Assertive or pushing back on a point, she can be labeled aggressive or a term that is different to how a man's behavior would be labeled. So there is a social penalty that women can face when they behave in the same way they see their male colleagues behaving in the workplace. So that can lead to differences. And so, if, as when we're recruiting, if we're looking for a certain set of behaviors, it really does limit the diversity that we'll get in our candidate pool. So one of the things we always say to our client is how can you relax some of the criteria that you're using when you're recruiting how can you um, find exactly the same capabilities but do it in a broader way where might you look that's different what are the attributes or skills that you might also include that you're not currently looking for that will still give you a great performer how can you just be a little less conservative in the criteria that you're setting for yourself
1: so a lot of recruiters face the same issue when they're dealing with clients and they're taking a brief to hire for a role now in the present market no recruiter in their right mind wants to narrow the candidate pool and yet, there's no denying it, they do get directly discriminatory requests from clients. Now, some of those are well-intentioned. Some of them, for example, might say, do you know what, it would be nice to sort of balance things up and perhaps we could have a woman in this team for a change, that kind of thing. Some of them are perhaps a little less positively intended. like, uh, And they come across as, for example, the person who's leaving is a uh, a guy with 10 years experience in this industry and happens to behave in this way and has never had a career gap and therefore please find me another one of those yeah so these are really challenging conversations to have and while recruiters may know the law let's not take even that for granted but they may know the law but they you'll understand that they are very very wary of smashing the relationship with the client uh, in the way they handle that. So can you give uh, people some practical advice on how they might encourage their clients, A, to change that brief, and B, are there any policy things that they can suggest to clients that might encourage a more diverse candidate pool?
2: Yeah, this is a great question and I, I remember back to my in-house days of seeing line leaders who would ask for exactly the sorts of examples that you've just given. So I know it goes on and I think it's, it's really difficult for recruiters because I guess you're caught between a rock and a hard place. On the one hand, you've got to satisfy your client and, and meet their needs, but on the other hand, there, are, there is a legal framework that you need to work within and some moral imperatives that you need to think about. And so the first thing that comes to mind here is an education piece. I think recruiters have a wonderful opportunity to gently support and educate their clients um, in the difference between positive action and positive discrimination. So positive action is legal in most parts of the world. Positive discrimination is not. And, of course, positive discrimination is where a client says, I need you to find me a woman or I need you to find me a man. So any any direct discrimination on the basis of, of gender or sex uh, is against the law, certainly here in the UK and in most countries around the world. However, tapping into candidate pools where you're more likely to find women and therefore create a bigger funnel of um, women applicants is positive action. And not only is that lawful, but generally that's encouraged. So I think there's a an education piece kind of I think there is a moral obligation that recruiters have to push back on clients, but obviously do it in a way that's maintaining the relationship and help educate them. Um, in a a market where talent is tough to come by the last thing the client wants to be doing is making it even harder to fill the job by having an incredibly narrow criteria which is going to be impossible to fill.
1: Um, And just in case any of our listeners aren't aware of this the programs of positive action that Sharon's just described are legal as long as their aim is to attract more candidates into the top of a funnel. However gender or any other protective characteristic cannot be used to then filter those applications that cannot be a reason to advance or stop a candidate through the selection process now a, a number of people i talk to in the recruitment world Um, will say yeah that sounds great what yes of course let's broaden the candidate pool and get the client to um, you know consider how the behaviors they're looking for might look different in a woman or a person of a different age group or whatever it might be but how how do we attract more candidates into the top of the selection funnel if you will can you give us some practical pointers on that
2: So, um, and I say this not as a recruitment expert, but I think certainly anything that widens your um, your reach of non-traditional candidates is worth trying. So are there um, uh, places you can source talent or candidates that are outside where you would normally look? Um, are there um, advertising campaigns that will tap into a different type of person than you would normally attract? So I think anything that helps you source people, perhaps not in the places you'd normally go and perhaps not the people that you would normally go to, is a positive thing to do. When it comes to helping to change the client's perspective on this, there's some really interesting findings from research that tell us that if if clients are more exposed to diversity candidates if they're more desensitized to diversity candidates, you're more likely to appoint a diversity candidate. So what I mean by that is if, if you only have one woman in a short list of four, statistically you'd think she has a 25% chance of being appointed. Actually, it's closer to zero because she stands out for her difference. And this, this applies, I believe, equally to any other minority, not just gender. But if you have two women candidates out of four, um, they have about a 50% chance of being appointed. If you have three out of four, they've got about a 66% chance of being appointed. So the less a diversity candidate stands out as being different, the more likely she is to be appointed. So, so once you've got some candidates, um, hire in batches or interview in batches, not just one at a time, is a great way to help educate managers about what the candidates can bring.
1: That is fascinating. I've never heard that statistic before. So a token woman or ethnic minority candidate who is the only one in the batch, in the shortlist, you're saying has a zero chance on average of being selected because they are clearly the token person fascinating
2: yeah this is really interesting um, research from the university of colorado it's fascinating because it's not what you expect but the reason for that is their difference is highlighted whereas if there are many other minority candidates in the short list the difference is not highlighted so they're more likely to choose genuinely the best person for the job yeah
1: and You know, we mentioned earlier about the need in this massive candidate short market to um, use every opportunity to broaden your candidate pool. There are still uh, a lot of people with hiring responsibility inside recruitment and outside recruitment as an industry who still regard the whole diversity issue as a worthy do it to be nice, uh, you know, uh, focus, where you're doing the underrepresented group a favour by including them in the list. And actually, the reverse is true, isn't it? There are strong commercial imperatives to recruit diversely not only because there aren't any candidates but can you just give us some
2: some statistics around it? yeah there's so it's interesting because there's there's been a lot of talk about the business advantages of diverse appointments for many many years but up until fairly recently that supposed research has only ever been correlational in nature what i mean by that is where you've got more women in an organization, those organizations tend to perform better. That's what the likes of McKinsey have found over and over. But what McKinsey have never answered is, do those organizations perform better because they have more women or are more women attracted to the organization because they're performing better? So you don't know that it's the women causing the difference. Now, in 2020, there was a really interesting study coming out of Australia from um, Curtin Business School that found a causal link, a direct link between having more women in key organisational roles, key leadership roles, and the business performance. And they found that having a 10% increase in women in key senior roles directly led to a 6.6% increase in the market value of the business. I think I think that's worth about 78 million pounds if you put it in UK terms for the average business. So it's there is a direct link that they found that having the women was what caused the increase in business performance. And there's lots of lots of suggested reasons as to why when you've got different perspectives, you're less likely to have groupthink, you're more likely to have product innovation, you're more likely to have different ideas put forward. Um, there's been some really interesting Studies done on how governments have handled the COVID pandemic and the governments run by women have had less deaths and better health outcomes. So there's something different that women are bringing to the table, which this study at least shows does lead to improved business outcomes.
1: Mm. So this is, importantly, this is diversity not as a ticking the box worthy thing, but as a commercial imperative. Okay. Okay. So now at an organisational level, what top tips have you got for uh, organisations that they can weave into their policies to encourage more? Let's, let's start taking it focused on gender diversity.
2: So in terms of what organisations should be doing, well, there's a, there's a few things that we would say at a macro level organisations should be doing, which is to build a culture which is inclusive, that values difference and values different points of view. And so often organisations need to get under the skin of how their leaders lead and what are the skills their leaders need to be able to do that, to create that psychologically safe environment that brings out the best in everyone. Um, From a policy point of view, and and, uh, focusing more specifically on recruitment here for your audience, I think there are some Some obvious things that I'm sure many of your listeners are doing already, um, but maybe some of their clients aren't, which is around making sure there is some consideration in the recruitment process for gender balance. So who's interviewing candidates? Is every interviewer for a short list of candidates a man or is there some gender balance in the the panels and the people that are interviewing? Uh, What are the selection criteria? We've talked a bit about that already. So how narrow are those criteria? Are they exclusive? excluding talent that could equally do a great job and how might those organizations broaden their selection criteria what's the language that they're using in in job descriptions in ads is a kind of more masculine than feminine there's some some good online tools that you can put your ads and your job descriptions through to give you a sense as to whether the language is biased one way or the other masculine or feminine so I think A lot of those processes help. Also, the bit I said about hiring in batches, so make sure that you've got several candidates that hiring managers might see at once rather than drip feed one candidate at a time. And if you've got several roles that are the same, hiring at the same time, so you're hiring in batches of roles, also means that you get a bigger candidate pool and you give your hiring managers exposure to a broader range of diverse talent as well. Thank you. Okay. So um, then at an individual level,
1: whether I, you know, people feel comfortable with or even prepared to accept offers from an employer often depends on the manager they'll be reporting to. So again, what advice would you give to individual managers about how they can encourage a more diverse workforce and, and redress some of those barriers that women face?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. There's a lot that individual leaders can do. So first of all, it starts with just being aware, educating yourself as a leader, um, as to what it might be like for someone in a minority group, whether that be a woman, whether that be um, a person of colour, whether that be someone from the LGBT community, and so forth, educate yourself. So read watch videos, listen, ask some of your team, ask them, what is it like? What's your experience as a woman speaking up in meetings? What's your experience having gone through recruitment? You should Ask some of the open questions. Um, but we all always say don't rely on the, the woman or the person of colour or the person with a disability. Don't put the cognitive burden on them to educate you. Do your own reading as well. Take accountability for educating yourself. But but kind of listen to other people. So it starts with having an awareness and really, I guess, connecting with the agenda a bit more personally, so caring about why this matters, hearing some stories from people that are important to you as to how it's impacted them. And then there's opportunities almost every day to practice allyship. So, you know, women more so than men report being interrupted in meetings, being talked over in meetings, having their ideas credited to someone else, (laughs) Oh boy, is that familiar, yes. (laughs) So many of your, your women listeners will relate to these things and men don't always appreciate that because they haven't experienced it personally. So there are these, what we call microaggressions, these tiny little things that happen every day that are so small that most women won't call out because it feels almost a bit petty to draw attention to it. It feels that you might be seen as overreacting. Whereas if a man can come in and say, Actually, Alison hadn't finished making her point. I'd like to hear what else she has to say. It's so much more powerful. So there's everyday moments of allyship that um, leaders, men and women, can practice um, in the moment that really make a difference and and just help reset the culture about what behaviour is acceptable and and what's not acceptable. And the, the third recommendation I would have. Um, so educate yourself, practice allyship in the moment. The third one is to sponsor women. So it's not just mentoring. Mentoring is important, but sponsorship goes one step further. And this is about helping to raise the profile and visibility of the woman. So this might be protecting her reputation when she's not in the room. It might be inviting her to shadow you in a meeting that maybe is above her pay grade, it might be teaching her the unwritten rules and the politics is all of those kind of things that help raise women's visibility. Because men statistically get more sponsorship than women, men are 25% more likely than women to get a sponsor. And when it comes to senior roles, men are 50% more likely than women to have sponsorship. And sponsorship is so critical. When it comes to senior roles, you need people advocating for you. So sponsor women
1: actively advocate for women and it's it just highlights doesn't it how important it is to get men on board with this this is not entirely a woman's issue to sort out and you know thinking about my earlier career there are so many times when I've been the only woman in the the you know the board meeting or the ops meeting or wherever it was and I was I was so scared of Uh, not understanding what was appropriate behaviour, that very often I didn't speak up when I had actually much better ideas than than some of my colleagues. And I can remember just a couple of people making a point of saying, well, hang on, Alison hasn't volunteered anything. Let's just give her a moment. What do you think, Alison? And it was really, really helpful. So last question, Sharon. This is you know women are not entirely passive in this those who are looking to progress their careers what would you say to them that they can
2: do to make a difference uh, personally there's lots of things that women can do and you're right there are some systemic barriers that organizations need to address but as women there are things that we can be doing right now on the job to make a difference so Tip number one is get a sponsor. So find someone in your organisation who's at least one, if not two levels more senior than you who can start to mentor you and eventually sponsor you and raise your profile. Um, the second thing is think strategically about your career. What, Where do you want to get to and what are the skills and more importantly the experiences that you need to take you there and how might you get those critical experiences? So think about who might help you, what you might do, what you might take on to get the right experiences. Third point is put your hand up before you're ready. So no one's ever 100% ready for a role and working in recruitment. I'm sure you agree with me. There's never the ideal candidate that ticks every single box or very rarely so put your hand up before you feel ready and finally uh, use your network build and use your network well
1: those are all really helpful and absolutely loaded with statistics and evidence now so thank you so much for that sharon and um, we're going to include a link to your white paper um, in this podcast for anyone who is interested in Reading more and having read it myself, I can tell you that there is a lot of data there that I will be quoting in future. Sharon, if um, any of our listeners want to get in touch with you directly, what's the best way to do that?
2: Uh, so, two ways you can either go to our website, shapetalent.com, um, contact us there. There's also a monthly newsletter we do if anyone would like to sign up to that, uh, or reach out on LinkedIn. I am always open to LinkedIn requests, so look for Sharon Peak, and you'll find me on LinkedIn. Okay, and that's Sharon, P-E-A-K-E. That's right.
1: So, Sharon, thank you so much for being my guest today and taking this another perspective on candidate shortages and what recruiters can do about it. For those of you who are listening, who are interested in uh, looking at your total business proposition um, and reviewing how your business can be sustainable, profitable, and really distinctive. Um, get in touch with me, Alison Humphries, that's Alison at recruitmentleadership.co.uk. And thanks for listening.
0: You've been listening to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe, review, and share so that others can find the podcast too. We really appreciate your support. If you have any questions about the topics covered or wish to find out more about Recruitment Leadership, please email alison at recruitmentleadership.co.uk, referencing the podcast. We're also on LinkedIn, where you can follow Recruitment Leadership and connect with Alison Humphreys. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us next time for another episode of the Recruitment Leadership podcast.